You're listening to Rough Translation from NPR. A few years ago, long before the recent invasion of Ukraine, I heard a story that stuck with me about life in Russia. The poet and writer Lenore Goralik told me about this pattern that she'd noticed among her Russian friends. These were middle-class Russians in big cities, mostly, who, at least back then, lived in this sort of westernized bubble. They're drinking coffee from Starbucks, buying furniture from Ikea, they have jobs at multinational companies, and consuming mostly independent media. But the most important thing is they have what what I would call a Western mind, which is very important. People who read a lot, travel a lot, share liberal values. You should never think in one package, but in many ways they share liberal values. And then she says this thing happens when their children get to school age and they go to public school with other Russian children. And then the child comes for the first time from the kindergarten with a black eye or just crying because he or she is bullied. Do you know what 90% of the bullied boys will hear from the teacher? You're a future soldier. How will you survive the army? Because everybody knows what happens in the Russian army. And then the children burst the bubble. Bullying in the Russian army, this is a whole other subject we're not going to get into here, but it is brutal and sometimes deadly. Young men go through these incredibly violent hazing rituals that are meant to strip your dignity, break your will. And so this child's bruises, or black eye, is this test. Are you going to prepare your child with the lessons they need for life in an increasingly militarized society? Because how exactly do you connect your Western values and everything you taught your child about resolving conflicts with words, which worked so fantastic as long as he or she was between their friends. Between their friends, who are children of your friends, once the kids go to school, they step out of your bubble. Yes, they're living in Russia. This is Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. What struck me about that story, then, is how it captured the ways that the world, as it really is, can pierce the bubble that we think we live in. And I've been thinking about it lately because whatever liberal bubble that some Russians lived in or thought they lived in has completely collapsed since the invasion of Ukraine. Those Western products they bought are not being sold because of sanctions. Their multinational jobs have largely disappeared. And the independent media that they watched has been censored or silenced. There's an exodus of Russians from Russia, unlike anything we've seen since the 90s. Lenore has been following that exodus, talking to people who fled about why they left, how they're being received, and what does it sound like? When a bubble bursts. You have to keep reminding yourselves that you have achievements, says Anne. You survived here for three weeks. You left. You have a working card. You made it. You configured out the cryptocurrency. You continue to work. You have to repeat this to yourself all the time. I'm not sh- I'm not sh- I'm not heads up that there are some curse words in today's episode that going forward we will not be bleeping so just in case that doesn't fit your listening situation right now you might want to save this episode for another time rough translation returns after this break
We are back with Rough Translation. I'm Gregory Warner. Lenore Goralik was born in Soviet Ukraine, now lives in Israel. And though she's lived and worked in Moscow, she's never had Russian citizenship. So when the war broke out... It might sound funny, but I could feel when the war started like a Ukrainian Israeli who is absolutely safe and can look from a side, write opinion pieces. Instead, I feel like a Russian, ashamed, horrified, and covered in shit. Russian TV had aired a segment claiming that she, Lenore, was against the Russian regime and against war. So she didn't know if she could enter Moscow, and she worried if she did, she might be arrested. But she also couldn't sit idle in Tel Aviv. I decided that I should do something. I've decided that I will write about the the exodus. She flew to Georgia, and then Armenia, and then Turkey, posting on Facebook that she wanted to meet Russians in each place. Some were people that she knew, others were strangers. And she would meet them maybe in a coffee shop or a restaurant and talk. And then when they said something that struck her, that's when she'd pull out the tape recorder. And she'd record the sound of her repeating something they'd said back to them. And the person could correct me and say, well, actually what I meant was this and that. So this is how it worked. The tapes of these encounters have this weirdly redacted quality, the audio equivalent of a document where censors have scrawled thick black lines over every sentence of the interviewee's answers. You don't hear the interviewee's voice, but somehow you hear them listening, to Lenore quoting them back to themselves. I, I told everyone that everything I write down, I don't write down names. I only put N and dot. N dot is a traditional way in Russian literature to name an anonymous source because I didn't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. I wanted anyone, everyone, to feel, to know that they can say anything. Many people have expensive and fancy haircuts, coloring, undercuts, hair tattoos. Anne says that he has obsessive thoughts about what will happen to these haircuts in a month or two. Money, money, money. This snow helps me a lot, says Anne. It helps me a lot to remember that I am not on a fucking vacation here. Anne got into conversation with a man who lived in Yerevan all his life. It's good that you came. You are so wonderful. You are the intelligentsia. You have such wonderful faces. We believe that you will create so many important things here. And when we are attacked, you will fight for us, right? So tell me about who, what's the profile of the Russians who are fleeing? Uh, on one hand, these are people who are afraid that they will be arrested very soon. And those people, for good reasons, fear for their freedom and fear for their maybe lives. A second category Lenore met were people who did not want to live in the increasingly repressive regime that Russia is becoming. A third, men worried about a potential Russian military draft. 
And the fourth category are people who are relocated by their companies. This is a good opportunity for them and their families and they relocate with their companies. Ironically, those economic migrants relocated by their companies are sometimes still receiving a salary. The political refugees who are fleeing often can't access their bank accounts because of Western and Russian rules. They wonder when they might be forced by finances to return. A recurring theme in the conversations, fear for those who already returned to Russia and who will have to return because of money, visas, relatives, or any other reason. How will they be received by their own? How will they be received by the other side? And most importantly, given the historical memory, how will they be received by the authorities? Anne has a crazy romance, a wonderful one. Her lover, an American who has lived in Georgia for a long time, says that he decided to rent a house for them for the summer. You need a house. She cries and says, are you crazy? Is summer coming at all? So there are more than 5 million Ukrainian refugees and a number of folks who are interviewing them and hearing their story. You've in some sense taken on... Um, a harder task, which is to speak to those who've left Russia. There's not, I think, as much natural um, sympathy for their stories in terms of uh, the narrative of the war. What did you want to know? What did you want to figure out? What did you want to ask people? I needed this. I had my own million questions. For example... Why do I feel so terrible? Why am I feel why do I feel so ashamed? What should I do with my horror about what's going to happen to Ukraine and what's going to happen to Russia? I wanted to talk to people and I wanted to discover what's on their minds and how it can help my mind, and that's what I did. Lenore says that thinking about her own feelings around this war, it made her recall her childhood in Soviet Ukraine and a lullaby that her mom used to sing. It sounds like In English, it would sound like My heart is quiet in the silence of the snow And the search party is out there on the uh, dangerous mission So it's a very strange lullaby, actually It's a Soviet war song from World War II The regime did terrible things and the soldiers did terrible things. We know it now. But in every family, there is a heroic story about how families survived, how grandfathers and great-grandfathers fought for their country. And now we are robbed of all this. We are robbed of the war song of our childhood. What did that lullaby mean to you as a child and then when did that meaning start to get complicated it's not about one lullaby of course but i lived in this soviet culture of 
we have a saying, anything but war, лишь бы не было войны. Let anything happen, let anything be, except war. Well, in some ways, the, the anything but war has been used as a justification for Putin. Absolutely. Because Putin's propaganda brought up this issue a lot, saying that Russia is always in danger from every country that wants to ruin it, as Russian propaganda loves to say, to put it on its knees. And Putin is the only person who can stop it. Putin, you remember, when he first took power 22 years ago, promised to restore order after the chaos after the fall of the Soviet Union. And he did. He stabilized salaries, kept the oligarchs in check. By the time Lenore moved to Moscow in the early aughts, she fell in with a class of Russians that were starting to live comfortably. The economy was good. The lives were good. The expensive fruits we bought from expensive stores were very tasty. And we, the most important part, we didn't believe that it can end like this. And we should have. Because the drumbeat of war and the violence of the regime were there from the beginning. First in Chechnya, then the attack on Georgia in 2008. Not to mention the internal violence against political rivals. We had all the signs. And we didn't believe, not because we were stupid, but because our life was good. And thinking about those unpleasant things was too harsh and too tough, and we didn't want to. And when we started realizing it and started thinking about it, that was too late. Anne Zlobna says that in Russian, Anne angrily says that it is no shame in speaking Russian if you do it like this. Instead of hello, fuck the war. Instead of goodbye, glory to Ukraine. And in the middle, you can say what you want to say. Anne говорит. And says that she doesn't feel shame, but rage. Why should I start a new life at 47 against my will? Why should I leave my loved ones? Why should I leave my house? Why did this old dick ruin my life with one movement of his hand? You have to keep reminding yourself that you have achievements, says Anne. You survived here for three weeks, you left, you have a working card, you made it, you configured out the cryptocurrency, you continue to work, you have to repeat this to yourself all the time. I'm not shit, I'm not shit, I'm not shit. Lenore is a literary writer focused on these personal details that speak to larger existential angst. And there's a frankness to these interviews that can be almost unpleasant to listen to. Some people still seem to be living in their bubble, seeing this war as having nothing to do with them. Others take on a grand sense of personal responsibility that can feel equally self-absorbed. But the chorus of these voices seems to capture something about this moment that's hard to talk about in public. I think that we are going through some kind of trauma here and... I think that we have no right to talk about it. We can talk about it with our therapists, probably, but not in public, of course. Ukrainians call us the good Russians. It, it means a bad thing. Because it refers to the good Germans. Yes. The good Germans was an ironic term 
given to Germans who claim not to have been Nazis, but nonetheless stayed silent or did not do much to resist the Nazi regime. And we can understand that they have the right to call us anything in the world right now, first of all. But of course, it hurts. And as one of the people I talked to in Istanbul said, we feel like we are fighting the same war against the same evil, but we can't even hope that they will see us as their brothers in arms. One of the people I talked to said, it's like you are cursed and only a Ukrainian can leave this curse. Can tell you that you're not this terrible, terrible Russian person. Lenore, are you familiar with the phrase white fragility? Yes, exactly. Yes, white fragility. Yes. This is exactly what Ukrainians tell us don't do. Don't do it. Right, don't burden us with your feelings, because that's not our problem. Absolutely, don't burden us with your feelings about what what you did to us, and they're absolutely right. But you did create a space, an anonymous space, for people to talk about these feelings. Yes, for us. I've created it for us. I'm a part of those who feel shame. And what I can take out of this whole project, which I didn't finish yet, but I can take is that people like me who feel ashamed probably should. We did nothing. I personally did nothing. So I have to live with it. When Lenore published her first batch of Exodus 22 on her Facebook page and on her website, she was immediately attacked by official Russian channels and online trolls. She was worried for the people who trusted her with their stories, what she'd expose them to. But most people never never see it. So thank God they don't know that they're dragged, being dragged through, through the mud. And then I thought, well, okay, they live in their bubble, we live in our bubble. Let's keep living in bubbles. Hey, before you go, Rough Translation is hard at work on a new season called, well, At Work. We go to workplaces around the world. The nine to five, it's a myth. To rethink who we are at work. So I think it's time I should make my own choices. And who we want to be. I just felt bigger and badder than anyone else because I could drive a truck. It's At Work this June on Rough Translation. Today's show is produced by Tessa Paoli. Our lead producer is Adelina Lancianese. It was edited by Luis Treas. Special thanks to Sana Krasikov for editorial insight and for introducing me to Lenore. We'll have links to Exodus 22 in our show notes, as well as essays by Russian and Ukrainian writers in Lenore's latest project, the Russian Oppositional Arts Review. If you never want to miss a Rough Translation episode, take a minute to subscribe to our podcast. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It helps others find the show. The Rough Translation team includes Justine Yan and Pablo Arguez. Liana Simstrom is our supervising producer. Bruce Oster is our senior supervising producer. The Rough Translation Executive High Council is Neil Carruth, Didi Skanky, Chris Turpin, and Anya Grunman. John Ellis composed our theme music, additional music by Blue Dot Sessions. This episode was mastered by Gilly Moon. I'm Gregory Warner, back 
this June with more Rough Translation. <laughs>